0: morning. My name is Dennis and um, I am not the pastor for preaching here. Dan Deckard is out of town. I think he's on his way back. Um, He'll be back here next week. I think he's going to continue his series on prayer. But um, this morning I'm going to be preaching on Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15. So if you can turn to Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15. One of the most frightening experiences in my life was when I was awaiting um, sentencing um, a few years back for crimes that I've committed. Um, And the thought of how much time I could do for my crimes gave me a sense of fear and terror um, that I've never known prior to that time in my life. The plea bargaining that went back and forth between the district attorney um, was nerve-wracking to say the least. It was quite an experience to be in the courtroom before the judge who ultimately had the final authority to uh, determine what my future would hold for me. It was a time of great stress, fear, and worry because I was fully aware that I was guilty and that I deserve whatever consequences the court system saw fit to bestow upon me. Now, I know that there are plenty of people who've never experienced what I've experienced what I went through, and who've never known the fear and terror of what it's like to stand in front of a judge who is about to sentence you to jail or prison. However, there is a day coming that's fast approaching where every sinner will stand in front of the judge. There's that day of reckoning that overshadows all of time in history when Christ will judge the dead. This topic that I'm... That I'm preaching on this morning ranks it doesn't rank as one of the more popular topics in the Bible, but it is there And if we're to grow in our knowledge of God and in our walk with God We can't just pick and choose Portions of the Bible or emphasize certain attributes of God while neglecting the others We've got to assess it all and read it all and take all of it in The same Jesus who died on the cross for sinners is the same Jesus who will judge sinners who have refused the mercy and grace that God offers through the cross of Christ. And have we forgotten, may I ask, or purposely chosen not to think about the fact that the same Jesus who is a God of love is also the same Jesus who is righteous and just, as we dive into the text this morning, it is my prayer, it is my hope that the Spirit would translate us as if we are here in this text. As, we, as if we see all that is going on in this text. And that the Spirit of God would awaken some here who may be sleeping. Because the reality of God's righteous judgment is a reality coming Sooner than we think. Please do not tune me out this morning, but listen intently to what God's word has to say. Not to what I have to say, but to what the inerrant word of God has to say. Because although some of you have plans to watch the Super Bowl, as I do... The reality is that we may not even live long enough to make it to the Super Bowl. The reality is that we may not live long enough to make it to tomorrow, next week, or even to Disneyland if that's in our summer plans. We can be so easily distracted, friends, of, by the things in this world and forget the reality of that soon coming day when the world will stand before Christ. Regarding sinners who seek to avoid thinking about their sins and thinking about God, John Calvin says this, They seek out every subterfuge or evasion to hide themselves from the Lord's presence and to efface it again from their minds. I hope that we are not like that. May we all here this morning be translated, as I said, into this scene, this terrifying scene. So let me just go ahead and read this passage for us in Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence. Earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Pray with me, saints. Father, I ask with my brothers and sisters here by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would take your message, that you would take your revealed truth and make it real to us. I pray that... We would hear your voice this morning and that me, that I would proclaim your word and not mine, Father. I pray that you would be exalted and that you would move in power. That you would give eyes to see and ears to hear, Father. That your spirit would shake hearts, Father, and draw them to Christ. May it be a sobering morning this morning. Father, do this for your namesake, Lord. Father, I thrust myself at your mercy and ask that you would use me an insignificant creature, Father, to exalt Christ and to make his name known. In his name we pray, amen. The text opens up with, Then I saw. This is the next phase of John's vision that precedes the time of the millennial kingdom, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, and the defeat of Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. This is the final judgment, the day of reckoning where everyone will have to give an account before God for all that they have done and all that they have ever said. The gospel writer Matthew says that this is the time when the nations will be gathered before Christ and where he will separate the sheep from the goat. Believers will be judged first, but that judgment will be a judgment of rewards and not one of condemnation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, speaks of the Bema seat of or the judgment seat of Christ, where Paul states, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This particular passage this morning, however, only focuses on the judgment of unbelievers, which happens, I think, chronologically after the judgment of believers for their rewards. And I base that assumption or that conclusion from Matthew chapter 25, where Christ is separating the sheep from the goat. First, he speaks to the believers and he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. He focuses first on the believers. Then he moves on to the non-believers. And the first thing that John mentions to see, that he sees is a great white throne and him who was seated on it. This throne is said to be great. This greatness refers to the power of the one who sits on that throne. Its authority is far greater than any in our land. It ranks infinitely higher in degree than the authority of the Supreme Court in America. For even the judges who have presided over the cases in the Supreme Court will one day have to stand in front of the one who presides over this court. This throne is also described as a white throne, referring to the purity of the judgment that is administered from the throne. Some law courts in this land and in the lands far and wide have gotten it wrong. However, this throne, this throne here in Revelation chapter 20, never gets it wrong. And every trial that this throne presides over will be tried justly, free from error. There are never any mistrials from the hearing that takes place at this throne. Next, John speaks of him who is seated on this great white throne. This one that is seated on this great white throne is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 5 verse 22 says that the father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the son. Earlier we already looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 that speaks of us appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 Paul says when he's speaking to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word. Christ is the only one, according to the Father in heaven, who is worthy to sit on this throne. He is the omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient one who presides over this courtroom, and he will have the final say regarding the destinies of men. Next, John says that from his Christ present. Earth and earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. It's, 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 uh, it is likely that John is here speaking in a poetic hyperbole, and not speaking of a literal fleeing of earth and heaven. Ian Boxell comments on this passage, and he says this: "It describes a mythological, in mythological terms, the coming to an end of the old order." That aspect of creation fatally compromised by its association with evil, chaos, and injustice. Such an order cannot stand before the terrifying presence of God, whose light exposes the darkness of deception and falsehood. Indeed, with the flight of earth and heaven, the demarcation between God's realm and the place where humanity lives is beginning to disappear. The presence of God is so awesome. That creation is described as fleeing from his presence. John continues. Then I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before the throne. Who are the dead? Who are these dead? The dead dead here speaks of unbelievers that have died ever since the curse was pronounced on humanity in Genesis chapter 3. Just imagine this awesome sight at this courtroom. Imagine the the myriads and myriads of people that have ever lived who will be present before this great white throne. This will be a most terrifying day for the dead. John says that that they are both great and small. Big sinners and little sinners will be present here. Rulers and subjects, CEOs and employees, geniuses and the unlearned, the civilized and the uncivilized, emperors and beggars, the rich and the poor, those who ate organic food and non-organic food. All coming from different walks of life, but having one thing in common, and that is that they are all outside of Christ. That is their common denominator. They are outside of Christ. The small sinners are those in this world that Stephen Lawson describes as having amounted to very little in the grand scheme of life. Meaning that they didn't really leave a big mark or a grand mark in this world. These are the people that you work with. These are the people your class who are your classmates in your classrooms, people you grew up with. They could be your neighbors and your childhood friends. They could very likely even be your relatives. They could be your father, your mother, brother, sister, cousin, aunt or uncle, and yes, even your children. Even your children. This is the reality. This may sound unpleasant to some. But it is the truth. And I'm just preaching the truth this morning, brothers and sisters. There are moments when I myself think of my family members, parents and siblings alike. And I begin to weep and weep for their souls, asking that God would have mercy upon them. There are times where I just, the the awareness, God makes me aware of the, the conditions of their souls. And I go to my room and I weep for their souls literally weeping for them, asking God to bestow mercy upon them. Lord, save them. Lord, save them before it's too late. It is a sobering thought to know that those in your household may be here on this day. And the consequences of this day it's, is more, most terrifying. I have this uh, uh, portion from Thomas Brooks, who is a, uh, a Puritan, uh, from 1670, and he writes this regarding um, the, the condemnation that awaits sinners who have not bowed their knees to Christ. He says this, but the impenitent sinner has no hope in hell. He shall have death without death, night without day, morning without mirth, sorrow without solace, bondage without liberty. The damned shall live as long, as, as long in hell as God himself shall live in heaven. Suppose, say some, That the whole world were turned to a mountain of sand and that a little bird should come every thousandth year and carry away one grain of sand from that heap. What an infinite number of years not to be numbered by all finite beings would be spent and expired before this supposed mountain would be fetched away. Now if a man should lie in everlasting burning so long a time as this and then have an end of his woe it would administer some ease refreshment and comforts to him but when that immortal bird shall have carried away this supposed mountain a thousand times over and over alas alas man shall be as far from the end of his anguish the torment as ever he and torment as ever he was he shall be no nearer coming out of hell than he was the first the very first moment that he entered into hell. If the fire of hell were terminable, it might then be tolerable, but being endless, it must needs be easeless and remedyless. We may share and enjoy pleasant memories here with our loved ones. But being outside of Christ, they will never experience the joy in the eternal presence, in the inter- eternal presence of Christ, but rather only the, the wrath of Christ. Next, you have the big and great sinners. Those who have sinned on a global or national scale, these are the Hitlers of the world. The Osama Bin Laden's, the Al Al Capone's and El Chapo's of the world. These big sinners are those that have been the source of great pain and suffering to hundreds and thousands of people. But as great as and well known as they were on a global scale. They, just like the little obscure sinners, will stand in front of Christ on this day. John goes on to say that the books were opened. It is the basis of what's been recorded in these books that the dead are to be judged. I take these books to be metaphorically speaking of God's record that he has recorded in his mind and not literal books. You may not keep a journal, but you can be sure that there is one who is writing your biography. As Robert Syce says, there is an unerring hand. Uh, an An unerring hand has recorded every item with every secret thing. Just think about it, friends. Every murderous thought, every lustful imagination, every lying word to have come from the lips of unbelievers and our our lips as well. Every outburst of anger, all fornication and every other sin under the sun that I have failed to mention here. All of it will be brought before this courtroom as evidence to indict those that have rebelled against God and broken his laws. Nothing will be left out. Nothing will be missed. God's memory is more permanent than a sharpie marker. And every last offense must be and will be answered for. Unlike the law in our land, there is no bail in this courtroom. There is no court of appeals. There will be no plea bargaining with the DA. There will be no probation and no parole. San Quentin State Penitentiary is heaven in comparison to the prison cell of hell. I've heard it said that the sinful world is the only heaven that the unsaved will ever know. And the only hell that believers will ever experience. Such a true statement. In verse 14, John goes on to say that the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and that death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. In order for the judgment just mentioned in verse 12 to take place, a resurrection must first take place. The sea describes those that have lost their lives in the ocean and the sea, and although their bodies have decomposed, on this final day their souls will be the souls of lost men in the sea will be reunited with their bodies. They will also have resurrected bodies. Death in Hades, or the place of the dead, will also give up those that were that have um, that have held uh, that have been held captive underneath the ground to be united with the souls of men and women that have been occupied that have occupied them once before. Notice the power of the Judge who sits on this throne. He makes the summons and all that he summons will appear before him. There is no escaping this day and there is no running from this terrible day. David in Psalm 119 says, Where shall I go from your spirits or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. the presence of God cannot be escaped. It is coming this day. It is sure, and you can literally bet your life on it. Try as one may to avoid this day, but nevertheless, every unbeliever's path will lead them to this day. Let me ask you this morning, friends, because I know that I'm speaking to a church congregation here this morning, but there is a category of unbelievers that will be judged on that day who call themselves Christian and and say to Christ on that day, and they will say to Christ on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? This is Matthew chapter 7. And he will respond to those Uh, To these people and say, I never knew you, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. How many of you here this morning merely have the name of Christ on your lips, but your hearts are bowed to other gods? How many of you here participate in church functions, attend Bible studies, pray daily, and yet on that day Christ will say to you, Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness? I've got to ask myself that same question. Is this real for me? How many in here come to church service? How many in here come to church service Sunday after Sunday, take diligent sermon notes, and are even moved by the sermons that Dan preaches, and yet your hearts have no desire for Christ? We may pray for God to heal and fix our marriage. Keep our children out of trouble and get good grades, do well in life, but to no purpose other than to have our wills or our agendas be done rather than the will or agenda of God. It's one thing to know more of the Bible and a totally different thing to want to long for and to know Christ, delight in him, taste him, and, and, and love him and, and be with him intimately by communing with him through his word. It's one thing to have our brains filled with the knowledge of God and the truth of God. And another thing to have our heart, have a heart that, is, that has Christ dwelling in it. And by heart, I mean that place, which is the seat of your emotions, the seat of your desires. You can have a change in behavior, but not a change in your heart. Friends, brothers and sisters, I pray this morning... That you would be honest with yourself and search your heart this morning and answer these questions for yourselves. Do you have Christ? Does he possess you? Do you have a heart that battles against sin and fail as you may sometimes, but you continue to fight the good fight of faith because your hearts have been transformed and you continue to press forward and run the race that Christ, that God has set before you. If that's you this morning, then praise God. I rejoice with you. But if you're not there, then there is reason to fear. There is reason to fear because for those whose names are not found in the book of life, they will be thrown into the lake of fire as stated in verse 15. It's not my intention this morning, brothers and sisters, to fear you into heaven, that is not my purpose, to cause great fear, in, to fear you into to heaven and to fear you out of hell. But rather, it is my hope, it is my hope to use fear for another purpose, that your fear would lead you to Christ, to trust in him, and in him alone to save you. For this passage also holds out hope for us. For there is the mention of the book of life. And in that book is recorded... The names of those who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls. Maybe, just maybe, Christ is calling someone here today to come to him. To draw near to the throne of grace before it's too late and all you have before you is a throne of judgment. Christ says, come to me all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. All who come to me, Christ says, I will in no way cast out. Would you come to him this morning if that's you, friend? If you don't yet know him or only thought that you've known him, and this morning his spirit is speaking to you and revealing to you that what you have possessed is not really the real thing, but something just generic or something, it's just a sham. Would you heed his words, friends, and come to him this morning? In closing, there are two implications from this text for believers that you can walk away with. One, you can be humbled at the fact that your names have been written in the book of life. Bask and soak in the reality of the amazing grace that has been extended to you through the gospel of Christ. The only reason that saints of the Lord have their names written in the book of life is because from before the foundation of the world, he has chosen you and set his affections upon you. It's not because he saw anything good in you. There was nothing good to be seen except for the work that he would do in you through Christ. It is all of grace. It is all of grace. Second, this message should provoke in you a desire to evangelize people that God has placed in your lives. Whether at work, in your household, in your classrooms, or whatever sphere of influence that God has placed you in. I, have, I remember when I was still living at my parents, we got to know our neighbors quite well. And uh, her name was Jean. She, uh, she was a real nice lady, and um, she uh, she was coming to the end of her life. And uh, the last few weeks, um, I had been able to build a relationship with this family. And um, she at the last couple of weeks, she couldn't walk. She could barely speak. But her son had come up to me and um, and invited me to come and see his mom and asked me to share some words with her. And so. In building and establishing that relationship, I was able to um, come to the bedside, uh, to Jean's uh, bedside, and I I remember singing How Deep the Father's Love for us to her, and uh, it was just a glorious time, and I was able to share Um, That passage in John chapter 10 where Jesus Christ says, um, he who believes in me, yet he dies, yet shall he live. And I asked her, Jean, do you believe that? And she couldn't speak, but she nodded her head with an affirmation. Yes, I do believe that. Who has God placed in your life to share the gospel with? There are some who only wish to manifest Christ with their lives through acts of charity and goodwill towards their neighbors. And rightly so, we should, we should love our neighbors through outward acts of servanthood as Christ did. However, if you, if you never speak of the gospel, I fear that you do them a great disservice. If acts of kindness is all you do for others and never share the gospel with people, you are, as I've remembered Dan Deckard preached years ago, four years ago, only loving them to hell. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. It doesn't say that faith cometh by your acts of kindness, but it comes through the hearing of the word of Christ. Your acts of kindness will not save anyone. It is Christ who saves and Christ alone. It's not my good deeds that will save anyone. Don't misunderstand me this morning. I, I'm, I'm not saying or I, I, I believe that we should be loving our neighbors through acts of loving service and kindness as mentioned earlier, but those should be bridges That we build in order that a door may open for us to share with them the only news that will save them. Namely, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, don't misunderstand me into thinking that you just constantly and arrogantly scream and yell of hellfire and brimstone to people. No. Engage the world around you. Build relationships. Immerse yourself in their lives. Get to know them. Step out of your comfort zone. Step out of your known circles and get to know the people in your lives. Get to know your neighbors. Get to know strangers and involve yourselves in their lives. That's exactly what Christ did. He stepped into people's messes in order to bring them hope. But just keep in mind... That in your efforts to share the good news, there will sometimes be resistance. Remember the words of Christ when he said in John chapter 15, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were, out of, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you bear the name of Christ, at some point you will run into opposition. Those that are, are, are not of Christ, however that may look. There will be times when you share the gospel and you will be met with opposition, like I just said. Uh, not all the time, but there, those times will come. There will be scoffers and those who laugh and mock you from time to time. And if you never run into opposition to the gospel message, then I would advise you to inspect the gospel that you're preaching and you'll probably find that there's donut glaze on that gospel which you're preaching and you just simply need to stop sugarcoating it and preach it like it is. Because if, even if you preach it with kindness, it's still an offensive gospel to a fallen world. The very nature of the gospel is offensive. It goes against the grain of our culture who are self-reliant and who see themselves as self-sufficient, opposed to finding their sufficiency in Christ. I remember in 2011, I think, um, I remember preaching on the bus one time. And as I began to preach, there were many in the back. This was in the Philippines. There were many in the back. And um, as, as I started preaching, there, were, there was a group just laughing. And I was greatly discouraged I was like, man, this is crazy. Why should I keep going? But I pressed forward. I pressed on and and I, I prayed, Lord, continue to bless your word. And so I kept preaching. And by the end of the message, there was a serious, solemn silence on that bus. And there were others crying and weeping, being convicted of the message of Christ. And when I had finished, I asked, how many of you here want a tract that I have? hands just flung up give me a track give me a track stay the course stay the course we live in unpleasant times where the world is not a friend to christianity but stay the course, for our God is with us. Remember what Christ says, and uh, what Christ said in um, in the book of Matthew. He says, um, he said that I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail over it. Friends, think about this message today. Think about Revelation. Think about that coming day where many will stand before this great white throne judgment. Many who have never Heard the word of Christ. I pray that you would be provoked to share the gospel, that you would pray earnestly, that God would open doors for you with your family members, your friends, and your co workers somehow to share the gospel with them, to share Christ with them. May this be a sobering morning for us. You know, I was thinking just yesterday how um, there are thousands of people in the state, there are going to be thousands of people in the stadium today at the super bowl but on that day there will be thousands and thousands more that will stand in front of this court room before this great judge we have an opportunity to share the gospel with the world around us we have been given lives not to squander it on our own i've done that so many times i have you have one life to live And I remember, I think, Piper saying, only what's done for Christ shall last. One life, one life to live, till soon be past. And only what's done for Christ shall last, I think is what the, the poem reads. Use your life, saints. Use your life to honor Christ, to proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word Lord, it is a sobering word. It is a sobering passage, an unpopular one indeed. But Father, may it sink deep down within us, in our heart of hearts, and may it change us and transform us. May it humble us and love you more, being reminded of how much we've been saved from. And also, Father, may it have the effect of causing us to want to proclaim Christ and share Christ with those around us. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.